Dear Father, we're grateful to you for this day. We do thank you, Father, for the resurrection that gave completion to the crucifixion. So we thank you for your grace, your great gift to us that is beyond describe uh, our ability to describe. We confess, Father, we're needy people. We know that. Um, we depend on you completely, actually, for everything. Uh, the scripture tells us in you, we live and move and have our being, so we know that every breath is from you. We thank you for that, for the measure of health we have to be able to be here today. We know some are not. We pray for those, Father, who are having different health challenges. Each one of us is aware of different people in particular that we're concerned about. And as we think of those names, we lift those folks up to you and ask your blessings in their needs physically and spiritually and emotionally. We ask your blessings to them. Father, we do continue to ask for peace in the Ukraine, that that war could stop. Uh, we pray for the people there who are suffering beyond our... The pictures are just horrible. And we know this has been the nature of man throughout history. But we pray if it would be your will that this conflict could stop soon. Father, we, uh, I'm thinking of Tim today traveling to Namibia. And I pray your blessings to him <clears throat> for a good trip. And a beneficial trip for Nathan Umoyo and the folks he'll be visiting with there. Ask your blessings on our time together and your word today and uh, your help and leading in the class, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in John 16, and uh, you know, this is, uh, it just struck me as I was studying this week uh, how this discourse from Jesus, it starts in John 14 and basically goes through 14, 15, 16, and 17. He's praying in 17. But uh, as he gets to John 16, it just seems to be so uh, intimate uh, to, uh, with the disciples. Uh, they are reaching a, a climax to what they have known, to what they have experienced the three previous years, what they've become accustomed to, and now Jesus is in the process of telling them he's leaving and things are going to change. And it's just a shock. You know, they, they're totally expecting an earthly kingdom. The Messiah was going to establish an earthly kingdom. That was the way they all understood uh, Isaiah chapter 9, Daniel chapter 7, and other passages. Uh, he would sit on the throne of his father David 
and of his government and his kingdom, there would be no end from those prophecies. So they were thinking physical kingdoms, um, and that wasn't it at all. And now Jesus has told them, I'm, I'm leaving, guys, but uh, everything's going to change. And they're just, just slammed. If you can just imagine, it's a mixture of shock, of disappointment, of grieving, and fear. How are we going to do this if you're not here? So in John 16, he is, um, he, he's really preparing them for what's about to happen, and uh, they... They've just got a lot to digest. Um, and so we start in John, in John 16, verse 1. I have said the, all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And he's referring to all these things he said in chapter 14 and 15. And he's, he's told them a lot to, uh, to help prepare them. And one, one way of looking at this is, uh, first of all, he they need to know who they are. And he tells them in John 15, about halfway through there, uh, let me see, verse 14, 13 and 14. He says, you're my friends. And before they were his students and his servants. Whatever he said, we need, we need this, go and do that. They, this, they, were, they hopped to it. He was the master the teacher, they were the servants, the, the students. And he says, now I'm going to call you friends. And a pretty significant statement because in Scripture, Abraham was called a friend of God. Moses was called a friend of God. And now Jesus tells the 11 disciples, you are friends of God. He says, you're my friends Qualification, if you do the things I command you. But he calls them, Judas has left. He got up and left the dinner and went to meet with the Pharisees and to, they're te technically 12, but there's only 11 at this point because he got up during this supper and left to go plan the betrayal. So he says, you're, you're, you're my friends. And that was a huge statement. Huge. Because they're very familiar with the context of what friends of God and who were called friends of God. They're two greatest heroes. It's interesting, but I don't recall anywhere that even David was called a friend of God. Only Moses and Abraham, I think. If somebody finds that something else, let me know. But anyway, the point is, they were in a select company. Um, so he wants them to know who they are. And then, then secondly, he says, I have chosen you out of the world. You are the chosen. Still a great series if you can get that DVD or go to that website and download it and watch it, The Chosen. Um. You're my friends and you are chosen. They are special. I chose you out of the world. So 
he's saying that to bolster them. Know who you are. You're very important to me. And then another thing he says in verse 2 is he says, uh, now they're going to put you out of the synagogues and the hour is coming when those will, that will kill you or think they're doing service to God. He's saying, now just get ready, be prepared. Uh, you, you, we got some tough times ahead, you guys do. And it's going to be so bad that the people that kill you will think they're doing service to God. Uh, of course, we know that from Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9. Paul is there thinks, thinking he's doing service to God by persecuting members of this cult, the way, and putting Stephen to death. And then later he's going on to Damascus to persecute and to imprison more Jesus followers. So it's exactly what Jesus said um, um, was going to happen. They're going to think they're pleasing God by killing you. Pretty rough. Verse 3. They will do these things because they know not, they have not known the Father nor me. Um. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you'll remember that I told them to you. And I'll say one more thing about the know who you are and be ready. And he also gives assurance to them in that he concludes this, this chapter concludes by saying, basically be of good cheer. You're going to have a lot of tribulation, but I've overcome the world. You're mine, and I've overcome the world, so just stay with me. Keep your faith. So uh, I've overcome the world. He's sort of, he's speaking really the certainty of his resurrection right there. He knows he's got to go through this. It's terrible. He doesn't want to. He hates it. He dreads it. But he knows he'll be raised. He said in John chapter 10, the Father gave me authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. I have that authority from the Father. So he's able to say at the end of John 16, I've, I've overcome the world, so be of good cheer. These things have got to happen, but there's no surprise to Jesus in about what, what's about to happen. Um, so he says in verse 5, I'm going back to him who sent me, and sorrow has filled your hearts you know, I was saying they were expecting the earthly kingdom. Just, just earlier before this, James and John, the brothers, they come to Jesus and say, Lord, we'd, when you come in your kingdom or when you come in your glory, could one of us sit on the right and one sit on the left? I mean, they are totally, they've totally bought into We've got an earthly kingdom coming. It's about to happen. We've seen you do all these things. We know you're the guy. And now he's telling them that he's leaving. Uh, so it's quite a shock. But there's a plan. There's a plan. Verse 7 through 11. I'm leaving, but I'm going to send the helper, the spirit. 
And he says three things that the Spirit is going to do when he comes in 7 through 11 there. He's going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's what the Spirit's going to do. Convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. So he says, convict the world of sin because you didn't believe in me. And so you Jews... They're guilty of their sins if they don't believe in me. They're guilty of all their sins. I'm the only solution to sin. I'm the only remedy for sin. So if you think ahead, in, at Pentecost when Peter's preaching, you know, the scripture tells us the Holy Spirit is the the word of God and the sword, it talks about the word of God being the sword of the spirit. And we're told in Hebrews chapter four and verse 12 that the, the word of God is like a double-edged sword cutting into the soul and spirit, dividing the joints and marrow. It cuts deep. So when Peter is preaching at Pentecost after Jesus is raised and has ascended, and all these Jews are there gathered together, and he says, you guys killed the one from God, Jesus. But it was, verse 23 and 24, it was not possible for death to hold him, and God has raised him up. And he goes on through 34 and 35, 6, all the way through 30. He says, God has made this risen Jesus both Lord and Christ. Talking about when he uses that terminology, he said he was the Messiah, he is the Messiah, and God has raised him up and he is the Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah and you killed him. And then the passage there in Acts 2, 36 and 7 says they were cut to the heart. They were convicted of sin, their sin. And that's exactly what Jesus said the Spirit would do when he came. He would convict the world of sin. And they're cut to their hearts and they say, brothers, what shall we do? We're guilty. What shall we do? And then he tells them, you need to repent about Jesus, verse 38. Change your hearts about Jesus, how you see Jesus. He was not a heretic. He was not a blasphemer. He is the Lord in Christ. Change your hearts about him and be baptized in his name for the remission of your sins and the gift of the Spirit. And then the scripture says that day about 3,000 were baptized. When they heard that message, they were cut to their hearts and they said, we want to obey Jesus. And they were baptized into Jesus. He will convict the world of righteousness, he says, because he's returning to the Father. He has completed his mission. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 11 we're told that uh, the, the angel tells the apostles, this Jesus, you're standing here looking at Jesus. You got your mouths open. Actually, he didn't say that about the mouth part, Ken. Well, he may have. We're just not told about that. This same Jesus that you've seen be uh, ascend will come back in the same way. So don't just stand here staring into heaven. He's coming back when the time is right. 
He's returned to the Father, mission accomplished. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that when Jesus had made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Holy Spirit, the message of the gospel, would convict the world of the righteousness of Jesus. He was from God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was the creator of all things. And he became flesh, and he returned to the Father. From God is God. Return to God. He is the righteous one. And then it says he will convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The promise was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said to Satan, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise or crush your head. He's going to kill you. He's going to take all your power. He's going to have a complete victory over you. And so when Jesus was raised from the dead, that was the completion, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. That God's son would crush the head of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says that he came to free us who were in fear of slavery to death by destroying the power of the devil. 1 John 3.8 says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. So the message of Jesus would convict the world of sin, of judgment, of righteousness, and of judgment. So let's go on. John 16 and verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Uh, Real quickly, just by the way, the spirit... The spirit is not an it. The spirit is not an it. The spirit is a he. He will convict. He will do this. He will do that. And he will guide you into all truth. So, and and he goes on to say, um, 14, he will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All three are mentioned. All three. Let me get that right. Kind of, I've been hanging around my grandkids too much. <laughs> All three are mentioned there in that passage and in other places. But the idea of the Trinity, the Spirit, the Father, the Son, is there. So when Jesus, let me get to where I can see my notes. When the Spirit comes, 13, he will guide you into all truth. We mentioned this last week, but the thing is this. There's no more revelation to be given. There's no more truth to be given than what has been given. God told, Jesus told the 11 disciples here, 
that when the Spirit comes, and he came in just a few days after that, in about seven weeks after that, that he would deliver unto them all truth. And then Peter writes in First Peter that we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, so don't, we shouldn't look for uh, latter-day prophets to give us more truth. Not, not according to John or Peter. Verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. What does that sound like? Sounds like what? A death and a resurrection. A little while and you'll see me no longer. And then a little while and you will see me. And he's telling them these things he said in advance so that when they happen they would believe it would help their faith. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is he saying? A little while and you will not see me and a little while and you will see me and I'm going to the Father. What's he saying? Look at this. So they were saying, verse 18, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. So they're talking among themselves. And Jesus knows what they're talking about. So he just interrupts their conversation. He he didn't hear it. They're talking among themselves. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said, by the way, Remember, this has happened before. Remember we read in Mark about chapter 10, they're going along the way there and the disciples are arguing among themselves who is greatest. I'm the greatest. No, you're not. I'm the greatest. Well, he likes me more. I'm the greatest. And they're going on with all this belly aching about who's the greatest. Belly aching. That's Arkansas term. We don't belly ache out here, do we? What do we do out here? We whine. They were whining. If I teach this in Arkansas, they're belly aching. They're separate from Jesus. So Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? Scripture says, no one would answer him. They're embarrassed. They didn't say a word. And Jesus said, I'll tell you what you're talking about. I'll just answer your question. The greatest among you is the one who's the servant. How'd you know what we were talking about? Subtle message there. I'm God. I know what's going on. I know what's in the hearts of men. Same thing happens here. So he replies, they're having this discussion among themselves. What's he talking about? A little while this and then a little while that. And so he just answers what they're talking about. And he tells them, let me read that. Let me get over there where I'm trying to get to. Verse 19. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, this is what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while you'll see me and a little while you want. Truly I say unto you, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He answers them, but he really doesn't answer them. 
But he's already told them, the Son of Man must die and three days later be raised. He said that several times. So he comes back with a little more description. You're going to become very sorrowful. The world's going to rejoice. And then your sorrow will be turned to joy. All this happens at the resurrection. You know, Caiaphas, uh, back in John chapter 11, in the midst of Jesus doing all these miracles and signs, messianic signs, things that by the description of the high priest, the priests, the Pharisees, the rabbis, things that only the Messiah could do. And when he did them, they said, that's what they actually said. And they said in John 11, verse 48, I think it's 48, we got to do something. If we let this go on, this guy's going to cause such a stir that the Romans are going to step in and take away our nation and our place. They're really concerned about their own preservation. Of their, they're really happy with their roles and their status. And if we don't stop this guy, we're going to lose our power. And then Caiaphas steps up, the high priest at the time, and says, you guys, you don't know anything. That's actually what he says. You don't know anything. And he says, one man will die for the nation. It's better for one man to die than our whole nation. Because if the Romans step in and take over, they're going to wipe out our nation. So we're going to sacrifice the one guy. Um, Of course, you remember the crowd at the time of the crucifixion. So they stirred up the crowd, the the priests, the, the Pharisees. They get out there and work the crowd. And you know, when Jesus is in trial, in, in, in his trial, and then Pontius Pilate says, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. Who do you want me to release? Jesus of Nazareth or Bar- Barabbas? And the crowd says, release Barabbas. That's who we want. So the, they had stirred up the crowd. So Jesus tells the disciples here, the world is going to rejoice and you're going to be very sad. That's what happened at his trial. But he says, your sorrow will turn to joy. That's what happened at his resurrection. Verse 22. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Well, that's, a, that's a strong statement, isn't it? Your hearts are going to rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And he says, I will see you again. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, the scripture tells us, Luke tells us, that he was with the disciples and the people for 40 days. 40 days. Why 40 days? I'll give you two, I'll offer two suggestions. God likes the number 40. Seems like a lot of things happened with 40. 40 years in the wilderness, 
Jesus tempted without food for 40 days and other, other events. And then Jesus spends 40 days appearing, being with, appearing in and out, appearing with the disciples over six weeks, seven weeks, six weeks. One, he wanted them to be sure, to be certain that he was raised, that it was him. That you just didn't all have this, uh, all at the same time have this strange dream that you saw me after the resurrection. No, it was me. And so he appears for them for 40, with them for 40 days. This is me. There's the scars. There are the holes. It's me. I want you to be sure about the resurrection. You're going to need to be very sure about the resurrection. If you're going to survive, undergo and survive what is coming, you're going to have to be very sure, certain about the resurrection. And I'll just, let me just add for us. Um, the, the resurrection was the propellant of this new religion, if you will. This fulfillment of the Old Testament and this new way, this new covenant, the way of Jesus. If there had not been a resurrection, if those disciples and followers had not been certain that Jesus was raised, how were they going to go through and survive what was coming and all the persecution and the killings, the torture and the killings? You had to be certain, like Paul said, I know in whom I have believed. Don't, don't you start singing. You're thinking that song. Don is great. I love him. He's the best encourager in this congregation of believers. The best. He loves the Lord. And he and I know all the old songs because we're older than all of you. Well, except for Bob Solomon. He's older too. Sorry, Bob. You're just sitting there minding your business. I'll stop while I'm behind. <laughs> Paul says, I know in whom I believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that, that day. And you could put that to music and it'd be a great hymn. You had to be certain about the resurrection to go through what they went, went through. And we need to be certain as well. The pressure for us to compromise, the pressure to compromise is constant. Compromise our values, compromise our dress, compromise our language, Compromise and on and on. The pressure to compromise is tremendous. It's huge in the workplace. What if the people at work know that I am a convicted follower of Jesus? Are they going to see me as some kind of fanatic? I mean, I've got to, I can't, I can't say too much 
if I say too much, if I make too much of a stand, they're going to label me as one of those Jesus people. I won't get a promotion. I'll be shunned a little bit. I won't be as popular socially. So I'm just going to keep my faith, but I'm not going to say too much because I don't want to get labeled. Ever thought that? Ever felt that? Ever felt that pressure? Yes, you have. Yes, you have. You've felt that pressure. And we have a, we have a, we have a decision to make when we feel that pressure to go ahead and say what we're thinking, what the truth is, or just be quiet. We should pray for wisdom to know when to speak and how much to speak. And we should pray for courage to speak when we know we should. What gives us the wisdom uh, and the courage and helps us make that decision? Being convinced about the resurrection. It was critical for the first century believers. It is critical for us if we're not convinced about the resurrection, the pressure to compromise will be too much. This has got to be something that we live and breathe. Live and breathe. Our DNA. Who we are. I'm a Jesus follower. We had a guy come to our house yesterday to buy some chain link fence. We got a project going on. He came, great guy. You could tell he's from the military right off the bat. So respectful. I mean, just a, just an impressive fella. Been in nine years. And so he's loading it up in his vehicle, and, and I'm I'm wanting to do this and pull out my cards. I want to give him a card. And, my bilfo was in the house. We told him we knew a bunch of folks, some military folks here at church. We just need to look for ways to let people know we're believers. It's the resurrection that empowers us to do that. The Lord and Christ will come back not as a meek, shepherd but as the Lord of the universe to collect his people and he's not messing around when he comes back he's not messing around he's the Lord and judge and he's coming back to collect those who are his who are not afraid to speak we're told in, in Hebrews uh, let me find it. I will maybe get to that later. Uh, so Jesus says, no one will take your joy from you. Verse 22. You know, Paul wrote the Philippians, and 30 years later after Jesus said this, he wrote the Philippians and said, our citizenship is not here, but it's in heaven. And he says, from where we eagerly wait. He's excited. We eagerly wait for our Savior who will come back 
and change our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That's part of the joy that they were feeling, that expectation that we're going to, he's coming back and we're going to be changed and it's going to happen just like he raised. He said that was going to happen and it did and he's going to come back and it will happen too. Peter mentioned in his letter in chapter 1 verse 8, you believed in him and you are filled with joy, inexpressible joy, inexpressible joy. This is 30 years after Jesus says your joy they will never take away from you. Hebrews 10, 34, you talk about a humbling passage. Read Hebrews 10, 34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you had a better one in store. You joyfully endured the plundering of your property knowing it's not about this. It's not about this. This is just material. We have a better one ahead knowing that you have a better one in store. Joy that would not be quenched. Jesus told the woman at the well, I'll give you water that will quench your thirst and be like an artesian well coming inside you. It will never be quenched. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. If we hold back from being convicted and committed, if we hold back our, from following as we know we should, that joy doesn't show up because we're holding back. Can't hold back. He died for us and he told us, you need to die to self and live for me. He died and we're to die. And be raised, he says, new. New. New values. Self taken off the throne and Jesus put on the throne of our lives. Verse 22 and 3. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. He's talking to the 11. And he says, we've got a change coming. He says, you've been asking me for things. You've been asking me things. He said, we've got a change coming. No longer are you going to ask me things. You're going to ask directly to the Father in my name. Your pleas, your requests will be going directly to the Father. You've been asking me, but that's going to change. You're going to ask the Father. You'll ask in my name, but you'll ask the Father. So the, the idea is here that God's love for Jesus is extended to include us now we're able to ask him directly. 
Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. One mediator. Notice he said the man Jesus Christ, he is a glorified human now. He didn't go back to heaven and become a spirit ghost. This Jesus who you saw ascend will come back in the same way. You will see him, Jesus. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. We don't know what we'll look like, but when he comes back, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. What's a glorified human look like? Don't know exactly, but the scripture talks about it an awful lot. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, so you remember at the crucifixion, Matthew records how the temple, the curtain of the temple is torn in two, from top to bottom. How do I do that? From top, how do I do that? You got the idea. Steve, would you demonstrate that, top to bottom? How do we, how do, we do that? Flight attendant? That's how they do it. What if it was like this? That way we're not flight attendants. We're just doing the temple thing. The veil of the temple, don't start. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. What does that signify? God is now open. Access. It signifies access. Only the high priest could go into the inner temple. Not anymore. Number one, the temple's gone. But the sign was that the veil was torn in two. And now access to God was no longer closed. It was open. God's in there was the idea. Of course, God's everywhere. So Jesus is telling them, now you're going to be asking directly to the Father. This is a huge blessing, access given to them and to us to be able to pray directly to God the Father, not before available in the sense it is now. Through Jesus, access granted. Amazing. Amazing. Verse 32. The hour is coming... He's told them all these things. Let's just look at this real quickly. We've got one minute. The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You'll leave me alone. You know, not only did Peter say, Lord, I'll die for you. I'll never leave you. I'll die for you. And the the passage says there in, in Matthew that they all said the same thing. Not only did Peter say it, all of them said it. We'll never leave you. We'll die for you. Jesus says, you're going to all leave me. You'll be scattered. You're going to go to your own places, your own homes. Zechariah prophesied when the, sheep, when the shepherd is killed, the sheep will scatter. This was another fulfillment right, up, right all the way through. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. Fulfill, 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 all the way. Very important thing here in the last 30 seconds. In the last part of that verse, 
I am not alone, for the Father is with me. We need to we need to let that sink in. Let that just settle in. Rory was helping me water the ewe the other day. So Rory, you got to pour it slow and let it sink in. If you just pour it fast, it'll just run off and the plant won't get it. He's pouring. There it goes. So Rory, see that? It just ran off too fast. You got to let it sink. This is one of those let it sink in passages. I'm not alone. The Father's with me. And the point I want to make is. We are not alone. We are not alone. Never. In Him we live and move and have our being. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff comfort me. Stephen's being killed. He's being stoned and he looks up and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's not alone. We're not alone. You'll feel pressure. You'll feel discouragement in this world. He says you have tribulation. Tribulation comes, one, from a sin-infected world. There's sickness. There's mess. There's problems. There's crime. It goes on and on. The sin-infected world. Number two, Sometimes additional pressure comes when we stand up and let people know we're Christians and when we speak for God's values. But we are not alone because we belong to him who has overcome the world. John 16, 33. God bless. We're done. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.